Alright everybody, welcome to Hacked History. My name is Lucas, I'm here always with uh, Jake. It's Jake T. Yeah. JT, some people call him. I'm bringing the energy today, but Lucas... We're doing some Hacked History today, as always. We're talking one last time about that Russian sub, that damn mother bleeping Russian sub that's out there. Well, We're going to find out what actually happened to well, it. We, it's about what happened after the sub site. Well, okay. But we pitched you a lot of theories. We did pitch and theories. Here's one I thing to understand. That would be sort of a fun middle ground, but apparently Lucas was not a big fan of that. I'm sorry. It was a fit. Jake just likes spreading. Meet your fucking ex- expectations. Jake likes spreading misinformation. Is what we found I'm out. All about so it. you know. I want to be the harbinger I mean, of the collapse of. Western that's why they call him the King of QAnon, but you know. <laughs> incorrect. <and> deeply incorrect. <laughs> I hate those people, and they yeah. all need to get out of the hole. But I hate those people too. But anyway. We are not talking that today. Today, we are talking some more submarine history, but before we get to that... A word from our you, sponsors. Yeah, a word from our sponsors, ourselves. You can check <laughs> us out at Hatch History um, on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook, Hatch History. Um, I guess you call it Meta now, but oh, you can sure. find us on TikTok at Hatch History. Who cares? Uh, Twitter, we're on, we're on there. Um, our... Gmail, um, if you want to send us an email about a question or comment or a show suggestion or anything like that, is hackhistory101 at gmail.com. Um, as always, we really appreciate all the ratings that you guys are out there giving us. That helps us a lot, so we greatly appreciate it. Um, as a side note, if you listen to the end of our last episode, uh, well, if you listen to our last episode in general, I didn't plug this before because I didn't know we were going to get it in time. Um, but we have a new theme song, so it's, um, it's by the band Beyond Mars, who they're going to be putting out a new album, um, uh, I believe this coming Friday. On Spotify. Uh, April, um, shit, what is that Friday date? It's Earth Day. Whatever day Earth Day is, um, that's when the new album's coming out. Yep. So that's, um, We're not going to insult the listener's intelligence. They can physically go. So you can go check your calendar, you um, Earth Day. Or so, you don't, and you can find out. But they're putting out an album, um, Jake and I actually recently went to a performance that they did. Good band. Go ahead and check them out. Um, they I would al- say very good band. Very good band, yeah. Uh, our friend Parker, who's already been on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, if you and listen, we hope they have him on more. Yeah, and he'll definitely be on again, but if you go back and listen to our uh, the Franklin Arctic Expedition uh, episode, uh, you can hear his vocal talents and his... Uh, you can, you, it's a fun episode, but you can hear him, and uh, we also talk briefly about the band in that one. So um, we got the new theme song, so thanks uh, to those guys at Beyond Mars. We greatly appreciate it. It's a fun touch-up from what we used to have. Um, a little bit more rocking to match Jake and I's energy. Um, the other thing I wanted, to, yeah, the last thing I wanted to bring up before we get back into the meat of the episode, you might call it, is um, uh, you'll notice that we also um, we're running a currently running a promo um, for our friends at Least Haunted. So um, if you haven't listened to our collabs or check them out just in general, go check at Least Haunted. Uh, they're not on Spotify anymore. Um, but you can catch them on pretty much any other podcast service out there. Um, you know. Whether it be iHeartRadio, TuneIn, um, Pod, whatever the hell. If it's got Pod in the name, they're probably on it. So, um, yeah, but go check them out, too. But I think that does all the housekeeping items. Jakey-poo, yeah. you want to hop on into... Uh, let's go ahead and submerge ourselves deep in... Submerge <laughs> Deep in the moist waters of the, of the Pacific Imagine again. Imagine yourselves as a crew member of the Polish submarine with Actually, the screen door. You know, you know what you should do? is uh, I want all of our listeners to go ahead and act this out. Go ahead and get in a bathtub. And, and just, get a toaster. Just, no, 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 not that. No, I, plug in the toaster. I just want people to take a bath and listen to this. That's okay. all I was going to say. Because then you, you know you sub, but Jesus That's Christ. Fine. Don't drink. Drown yourselves or kill yourselves, please. That's ugh. God damn it, Jake. <laughs> hey, that's what happened to the crew of the K one two nine. Okay, D- misinformation machine. Let's talk about facts today. So, <laughs> just it's just a theory, a game theory. <laughs> if this is a theory, I'm no, gonna no. strangle so, you. <laughs> we're not talking about the submarine specifically on this episode. Just to elicit. So just to elicit, just to elicit some some understanding here before we get back. It's been a while. It's been a hot um, minute. We were busy with some stuff outside. We we have um, trivia, which is a whole town wide thing. Where we yeah. Come from. If you if you weekend, Google so. the world's largest trivia competition, uh, you'll find the stuff. That's what Jake and I did. Yeah. We actually uh, passed the weekend. Two twenty one out of three hundred teams. What was uh, the name of our team? Rock and Roll McDonald's. Yeah, um, go ahead and check out. Uh, go check out that Wesley Willis song if you want to know where that came from. Um, I also used to be a manager at McDonald's in a past life, so, you know, that's also something yeah. that I did. And then he was killed in a fryer accident and reincarnated. <laughs> and I reincarnated myself as a podcast host because I love, I love torture. Anyway. <laughs> 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 you 
fucking no, movie. No, so anyway, what Jake, what I wanted to do here. Anyway. What are the facts? So if we're not talking specifically about what happened in the submarine here, what are the... F- just give everybody a reminder of the facts that we know about the submarine bef- right. as a lead into this. Yeah. In full, I would say if you are very much interested in the original story and most of the details, we went through them in the first two episodes of the mm-hmm. three-part series. There is facts in the second episode, by the way. Yeah, it's a good episode. Better. I'm talking a lot of shit about it as a joke, but it was a fun episode. We did yeah, have a lot yeah. of fun recording that episode. A little bit of theory crafting on our part. Yeah. But we basically talked about how... In the late 60s, 1968, a Soviet nuclear missile submarine titled the K-129 basically... A minor! A minor! <laughs> Jesus, you suck ass. Went off for a regular patrol in the Pacific Ocean and mysteriously disappeared with all hands. Jake, you can get closer to the microphone. You, know, you can go ahead and uh, oh, yeah. go ahead and make love to that microphone. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. He's in your ears now. <laughs> I was to upset the listener. But the fact is that... We talked about the previous episode just about the submarine, about the incident in question, and then in the second episode, we sort of talked about a lot of the theories, because I thought that'd be a little bit more of a laid-back, sort of more discussion Laid-back, yep. <clears throat> Which it was. It was. So, and it was a good episode. It was fun. We, we both had a good time talking and arguing about which we thought was yeah. more plausible, so. And I know this is the question rattling around in the <laughs> talking right now. And you might be asking yourself, Lucas, why the fuck are we back here again? Yes, Jake, that's uh, honestly what I asked you before we started recording, because let's be, I'm going to be, just, here's a peek behind the, behind the, behind the curtain here. I thought we were beginning the next series that we're going to be doing, but instead, we had one more sub-episode left, and I was, I was a little frustrated, but I'll tell you what, we're back here, and I'm ready for it now. <laughs> Actually, oddly enough, this does in some ways kind of coalesce into the space race, because we talked about some people that helped get us there yeah just so you know the space race is our next uh yeah. series but we're gonna be starting all the Luke way back it's just hard up to do some not more we're not starting all the way so. listen you motherfuckers fuck with adolf hitler that's all i'm saying because li- that is <laughs> that is our most downloaded episode by far so as a content creator i was like jake we should probably give him some more nazi content so we are starting like full on with the end of world war ii we're talking operation paperclip yeah and then we're moving beyond that all the way to the first uh, Man in the Moon. So yeah, pretty much. That's going to be a we'll pretty expansive about, series. We'll talk about the space race on both ends. We'll talk yep. Operation Paperclip. We'll talk about, you know, Werner mm-hmm. von Braun. We'll be talking about the Soviet race. Probably talk about Jack Parsons some, too. He'll come in there probably some. Because okay. Jack Parsons was involved, yeah, too. We'll probably talk some Jack Parsons. Yeah. Um, so that, look forward to that. JFK will be in there. You know, all the good, all the all the hits, yeah, baby. Absolutely. You know, um, so that'll be a fun series. That's going to take us probably quite a while to get through. Um, so if you're familiar with what happened with our Watergate series, it's probably going to be something similar for Space Race. But it will be a lot less, like, <laughs> It will be a lot, le- it, but the thing is, yes, exactly, the, the reason that Watergate got pushed out so much is because there was a lot of technical details, yeah. which some of you were very into, which we appreciate, because Jake did put a hell of a lot of effort yeah, into read, researching that. In this case, I kind of did too. I've watched one documentary, I've read, like, eight or nine, I've read, I read most, if not all, of the existing documents on this, for this episode, and I read a book. Yeah, so and for all of you that doesn't that don't think Jay takes this shit seriously, he this motherfucker takes this shit seriously, okay? Yeah. Unfortunately, Lucas um, doesn't think I take it seriously. No, I do. I give you your props, man. You like to say that I don't care, but I I give you your props. Just not usually on mic, but I'm doing it now on I mic, so everybody knows. You don't do it in public. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but basically, yeah. So that'll be the next big series we do. Um, we're gonna have probably some lit literatures in there when Jake needs a research break because it's gonna happen because there's a lot to tackle. Um, so we're gonna have some lit literatures in there probably. Probably get a couple more propaganda episodes in there as well. Yeah. So you know it'll be a good smattering of content coming at you and over the next couple of months. And this is still really depending on how our real life schedules work. We might do like a propaganda episode next after this, and then start the Operation Paperclip thing. So it'll either be the first episode of Space Race or a propaganda episode yeah, next we'll week, depending on how things shake out. Or actually, what I might, what I'll, you know, Jake, what we're gonna do next week, I'll just tell you right now. This is a surprise for you and the listeners. We're going to be talking British airship race. Um, it's a fun story that I found. Um, it's not propaganda related, but I promise you that it's a fun little story. Uh, like it'll that. be a good space like holder. That. We need a break into the episode. It will be a good space holder in between our major series. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk British airship race next week. And honestly, I'm not going to say much more than that because it'll just be it's a fun one. So, yeah. Well, it's not fun because it ends in tragedy. But it's it's interesting, is what <laughs> I mean. It definitely the ending is not good, but like the the hilarity of like how they got there and why they got there and the stupid decisions that were made, 
it's a trip, man. It's a trip. So. All right. We're good fucking around. We'll get down to business. Listen, we weren't fucking around. This is updating our audience, Jake. We're getting down to business. Let's get down to business (laughs) to defeat the Huns. All right, you've given them at least the minimum five seconds. We will not be sued by Disney. I think it's 15 seconds we get, so. Okay, anyway. So, as Lucas is probably bored and and somewhat seething, wondering why we're back on this topic one last time, is that I wanted to talk about one specific thing. The story of the K-129 does not end with its sinking and disappearance. Nine! Nine! It ends with... (laughs) It ends... With them recovering it. All right, so yeah. we did get that submarine back, huh? Yeah. This is by and far the slightly most absurd thing I've seen that worked from the CIA outside of the Bay of Pigs, which is just folly. So today, are we mostly talking the process of just how they found this and how they got it out, or this is is the sort of thing situation where I, I want this to be the overlying thing that I want people to make note of the entire time of this episode is that in order to recover a submarine from the depth that they were getting it from, had not been done before. They basically went where no man had gone before, <laughs> literally, under the water. You know what that reminds me of? There's <laughs> a South Park episode when they, James Cameron's down there with a the submarine, and like, this is James the Cameron, bar! the greatest pioneer. <laughs> no mountain too tall, no sea too deep, oh, it's James Cameron. Cameron. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, <laughs> the fact is that this is a, what I episode, what I episode, what I titled this episode was that I wanted it to mainly, mainly focus around what is called Project Azorian, or Project Jedi. Ooh, that's fucking exotic. On what, <laughs> For a beer friend. No, it's just <laughs> Azorian? What the, you could just call it Project, let's get the fucking sub out of the water. Yeah, well, that's actually a fun part about that, is that the CIA does that specifically so they won't know what the project's about, but... <laughs> I'm going to start with the origins of this. We're going to start from the moment that they found the submarine in 1968, 1969. So, so, there, so there's, it's out in the water, right? It's there. on the bottom. <laughs> it's on the bottom. Yep. It's just collecting mud. It's like, a, old, it's, like an old, it's like an old Chevy pickup. <laughs> yeah. Like a little bit of dust on the bottle. There's still a fire down below or whatever. That's all it's about. Uh, it's what is it? It's it. A little dust on the bottle. Um, I can't remember it. I don't know. It's, it's basically a song about an old man getting an erection for a young woman. So, But don't let it fool you about what's inside. That's yeah, the next so lyric. What we had basically come to the conclusion on the end of episode one was that K-129 had been found. Where the Soviets had failed to find the submarine, the Americans could use their superiority in technology to basically locate the sub, say, we found it, but say, we're not going to tell the Soviets, you know, because this is kind of nice that we can have this to ourselves. And the boys at the CIA decided that there was something in this. Because a semi-intact Soviet submarine wreck sitting at the bottom with possible loads of atomic and cryptographic intelligence, the possibility of recovering that's just too tempting. Look, listen, we don't care this has never been done before. We found a Ruski sub. We're going to bring that shit above. <laughs> bring that shit above. <laughs> it's like, that listen. Like something that no, would happen if you put a millennial no, in a It's like, it. it's like Jesse Mike's, you know how the fucking slogans be a sub above? They're like, <laughs> it's literally this guy is like, we're going to make this a sub above, god damn And that's what happened. The guy who founded Jersey Mike's was the head of the program. Dude, just fucking, <laughs> god damn it, I'm going to open a sub shop. God damn it, I'm going to open a sandwich shop called <laughs> Jersey Mike's. <laughs> And God damn it, we're going to be a sub above. <laughs> so let's be honest, though. We already discussed this a little bit here just now. There, the idea of it was circulated almost immediately when they said, hey, shit, we can pick this thing up. <laughs> the only problem was the depth of where this sub was at. See, as a little bit of context to this, at, up until the point of 1968, 1969, and into 1970, the max depth that any underwater object had been recovered, specifically at least by the U.S. Navy standards, had been between about 800 and 900 feet. Well, yeah, I mean, and to put this in even more perspective, there are parts of the ocean floor that we have yet to explore as of today yeah, we're talking because like, we just don't have the technology to get down yeah. there. Like, there are things that, like, literally live off of, like, nitrogen from the Earth's core instead of oxygen. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So what ended up happening was that, you know, there had been situations where they'd been able to recover certain submarines, but a lot of cases, if a sub left from, like, mostly coastal water into actual deep, like, blue water, 
I guess is the word I would use. So we're talking like deep blue water, like huh? Like a thousand and below, that sub was fucked, and you're not getting it. That's uh, yeah. if it's below. <laughs> sorry, I thought I think that's stupid. If it's yellow, let it mellow. <laughs> I was trying to think of a, a fucking way to turn that for the sub, but I couldn't do it. So well done. <laughs> well, the only problem is this was an 800 to 900 feet that the K129 sat at. That sucker's sitting at about 16,000 feet. That's a deep boy. But is it possible? Is it possible? <laughs> Shit's into the fucking ancient aliens now. Yeah. But is it possible to, to, to take a sub from the ocean floor down to over down over a thousand meters to bring it up to the earth? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it, study its plans to get an advantage on the roof skis. <laughs> no, and the fact was that recovery based on just that point alone, at least within like the official circles, was saying like that's practically impossible. Because it's like almost impossible to do the technology (laughs) to do so and we're talking the 60s here too we're not talking about nowadays yeah no we're not talking about like we have all this fun shit you know we're talking people are working on punch cards when men were men (laughs) when men were men and everyone died of smoking (laughs) smoke inhalation leading cause of death (laughs) so the fact is this is that even so with all that acting against it that recovery idea just was too much of a fucking nugget. To Pretty ignore. difficult to do, yeah. That was such a, I was so good. Just, yeah. <laughs> so the fact is this. The thing that really was drawing in the CIA specifically was the fact that up until this point in time, the U.S. and the Russians, and again, going to the space race a little bit, had very little knowledge of the other's sort of rocket capabilities. Okay. So what happened in the space race specifically, and what we'll talk about, is that most of the space race getting the man to the moon was kind of, in a weird way, an attempt to see if we could put nuclear weapons into space. Yeah, I mean, that was part of it. That was kind of the main drive of it. And so that meant that on the ground, both sides had rockets and missiles, and those missiles and rockets basically had specific ways that they work. So... Oh, really? They don't work the same? No, I mean, that's the thing. You know, like, the Russian missiles will be probably kind of iffy compared to American ones and stuff like that. The fact is that... That chance, that scant chance of picking up a working nuclear missile. But is it possible? (laughs) It is possible. They tried. You don't have to ask an open-ended question, (laughs) guy from Ancient Aliens. (laughs) Trying to think of that guy's the narrator's name, but he doesn't deserve the credit. So, no, that's not the narrator. That's uh, that's the producer. That's also that is the narrator. The dude goes, "Is it possible?" Yeah, that's not the dude with the weird hair. Anyway, anyway, so the fact is that it was just too good to pass up. Because if you get a working nuclear missile from like from the Soviet Union at a time when that shit still technically would matter, that's a huge get. Good get, yeah. Yeah, it's a great get. And that possibility too of getting any cryptographic equipment and naval codes meant that if you pick that stuff up, you can read into the Soviets' movements for years, depending if you're able not to tip them off. So that's a huge thing if you're talking strategically. Because that's just the best way. You know where your guys or their guys are going before you even send anybody out. So, moving into that, I like to consider this section what I call deep sea espionage for dumb shits. Jesus. Yeah. And the fact is, the ideal was set. The CIA was looking for possible options to bring up the wreck, but they kind of weren't sure how to go about it. Because again, no one had done this before. Because <laughs> you're going to pick up a whole fucking sub and just bring it to the surface, which is yet undone. Um, there were ideas that they threw out at board meetings. Some, like the idea of using buoyancy to raise a submarine, were feasible. You know, happens. Could work. Put some buoyant gas in that bitch and send the, her to the The top. thing is that I I don't think they understand just how much pressure there is in the bottom of the ocean when you're yeah. a thousand meters down. Now, <laughs> if that one sounds dumb, there was another one. Okay. <laughs> they planned on putting rocket engines on the wreck and... Jutting it to Again, the surface. Again, still fucking stupid. Not gonna work. That one was just an out What is this idea. cartoon bullshit? Like, who when is I, coming up with this? The idea was the book I read. It's, it's so funny to me because I'm sitting there reading the, the chapter relating to that and I had to include it. And in the book that I'm reading, it says, yeah, they had not come to a conclusion as to how to stop the ascent before yeah. sending it into orbit. Well, here's the other thing, too. I'm like, like, no. I'm like, here's the thing. I only took high school physics, right? But I think I have a good understanding enough of, like, how, like, forces of, like, you know, forces worked in, like, Newton's laws to understand that, like, if you try the gas thing, number one, I don't think you're going to have enough fucking, like, thrust to get it up. And And if you do, you could could risk crumpling it because the 
ocean's also pushing down on it. Yeah. So I mean, there's no. And then, there's <laughs> if you try the rocket thrust, yeah, you could just go way the fuck up in the air and not be able to control it. I don't it. even think it would go up in the air. I think it would disintegrate on its way up. And then yeah, because would be of the fucking, fucking forces on it. Like yeah, you exactly. can't just. <laughs> so, I mean, understandably, those two ideas didn't work. They were like, if you ideas. if you need clarification on this, yeah. go to your bathtub and just sink something, and then just. Try to bolt, feel, just get a straw and blow into just, it. Just feel how that works for you, and then let us know if that works out. Okay. So, ideally... <laughs> I'm sorry, that, that just really no, no, really a, struck a chord with me. That's a really, yeah, it's a really <laughs> dumb plan. Now, the fact is the CIA knew that it was stupid, at least in that case, and were like, yeah, no, that's not going to work. Oh, really? They did, huh? Yeah. Now, they did come up with a solution that did appear feasible, and it was that they were going to pick up the K-129 <laughs> with a kind of claw. Think like... If I had to think on, like... Okay, why does everything sound like a fucking plot of a National Treasury movie? We're gonna fucking steal the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> Where do you think this came from? They probably listened about this and came up with it. Oh, and Nick God. Cage was like, I wanna steal a thing with a claw! Fuck yeah. Nick, we can't do that. That's just a movie. Well, I wanna do it! Love you, Nicholas Cage. <laughs> so the fact is, as I'm fucking fighting my headphones here, the fact is, is that... The idea of using a claw a la, sort of like a claw machine at an arcade. Okay. It's kind of feasible. It, okay, yeah. It, it, that, so, so, far, so far, out of all the ideas they came up with, that's pr- feasible. But you're talking one massive-ass crate. That's the thing. <laughs> this whole project is immensely massive. And I talk yeah. about physical scale. Is, is this what they choose? The, yeah. The claw one's the winner, yeah. huh? I mean, they, okay. it is what they use. Because it is within the realm of reality. Okay, but how do you build this thing without the Russians finding out? Well, that's the thing. So, I'll, we'll talk about that. Because it involves our favorite crazy billionaire in just a second. So, Howard Hughes? Mm-hmm. Fuck yeah. I didn't mean to give that away, but okay. <laughs> so, the fact is that the CIA decided in 68 that they had that idea. They approached the Johnson administration to look for some sort of president. I love the fact that LBJ and his massive cock was, was involved in this. LBJ was currently hiding under a desk at the time because Vietnam had gone so fucking long. <laughs> Too busy ordering pants. He's like, you know what? Just push ah, hold the... Hold now. What you want to say? Push no, the... No, 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 no. My bunghole is more important. Listen, push the claw through. you guys want to do some sort of intelligence game. But hold up now. Yeah, I want you to make it so the cut rides down right around my nutsack. Honestly, and we've said this before, and I'll say it again. If you haven't looked up LBJ orders pants yet on YouTube, you are fucking. You gotta do it. You gotta do it. You were missing out. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, because LBJ was so concerned about his bunghole in Vietnam at the time, he didn't really have the really (laughs) want to say go ahead with the project because also. The election had happened at that point, and he was out anyway. Just out there cowering under his desk. Basically, well, I mean, the fact was, he's he was broken by this time, so there was no reason for him to be authorizing shit that wasn't maybe going to get done by Nixon when he came in. Uh, so, tricky dick. Yep, they put that one on. on what on a series of hold on. Yeah. What a series of fucked up presidents we had in America during that time Kennedy, period. Johnson, Nixon, and Nixon, Ford, and Carter. Those characters. I and mean, then Reagan. Jesus Christ. And George H. W. Bush. And then Clinton. And then Clinton. And then George W. And then W. S. Jr. And then Barack was semi-normal. No, Barack was very normal. Barack was good. And then I we, would say this. Then I we mean, had dumpy dipshit outside of the fucking drone strikes, and then dumbass. And then currently we've got um. Standby President Joe Biden, who he's tried his best, goddammit. He just wants us to like him. <laughs> I feel it's like. I feel so bad. I feel, for like, him in a I feel way. like my grandfather's president right now, is what I feel like. Yeah. So, that being the case, obviously the CIA decided they just wait until Nixon came in. And in 69, they decided to try it again and approached the Nixon administration, and Nixon approved it. And the CIA set out selecting the manpower, leadership, people necessary to make the project work. So, first. Listen, we need. Listen, I want you to scour all of the arcades around the country. I, I need you to find the best claw machine player in this side of America. I don't care if it's a 14-year-old from Greenville, South Carolina. Get him in here. He just pulls some zit-faced kid from a fucking, like, thing. He's like, what you doing, mister? Come on, kid. You're coming with us. You just shove him in a van. Listen, Johnny. I understand you're only used to operating cranes that are about the size of well, let's say about the one one hundredth the size of what we're going to need you to do here but the concept is the same though so let's rock it <laughs> I like too that this kid would be just sitting in the control center where they're like alright now if you go left or right by even a centimeter you're going to destroy everything and he just cracks his fingers and goes just like jerking my dick <laughs> so they're like hey listen just like what? am I winning a prize for this? <laughs> the prize is we don't shoot you in the end 
I'm right. going gonna, gonna to take a hard pass on that. All right. <laughs> so that being the case, Nixon, ever being the person who was a shady son of a bitch, decided that, yeah, yeah, he's going to go with it. Yeah. Yeah, so this sounds like something Nixon would say yes yeah, to. absolutely. Hey, because so, listen, if it... <laughs> Thinking very nihilistically, knowing what Nixon did. If this fucks up and he's already committing all that espionage, at least if this goes horribly espionage less than a year ago. If this goes horribly wrong, at least he, at least he'll distract from the Watergate system uh, if that ever comes out. Yeah, and weirdly enough, this whole thing actually came out and the lid was blown off after Watergate in '75. Just as Nixon, uh, that's not. Yeah, it was, a, it was the Ford administration. Yeah, Ford. But um. They decided that they needed a person to lead this thing. So the person that they chose for the program was going to need a chief executive, a man to legislate. <laughs> Sorry, I was about to give a speech and I fucked that up. The fact is that they looked for a guy who knew his way around the system and around secret projects in general, and that man was John Perengoski. You know, it would have been really funny yeah. if they had picked... Uh... <laughs> the guy who who led the Manhattan Project. He's like, we're bringing you back. You did you did such a good job with the Manhattan Project. Stop cancer. I can't speak. <laughs> we don't need you to speak. We need you to lead. <laughs> we need you to lead and read. Last guy didn't know how to do either of them fucking things. Yeah, it's like it's unfortunate. It's like you know he came from the Simpsons uh, school, Arnold Schwarzenegger president style, where I was elected to to lead and not to read. You know, That's on so. the banner. That's the alma mater for that school. Yeah. 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 Hey, in other words, he went to. In other words, he went to Cornell. <laughs> Boom, Dumpkin. Hello, Phoenix <laughs> University online. Anyway, fry, so, baby. <laughs> why Perengoski? Well, the fact is that Perengoski had been an agency veteran since 1948. He'd been in the system for a long, long time, and he had been head of a series of groundbreaking intelligence projects in the past, like the U2 project. Okay. He's been a part of it's the U2 rockets, the ones the Germans used, right? Nope. No. U2 was the plane. Fuck, I'm sorry. Okay, but that's good. You're, you're, I mean, this all kind of revolves in the same sphere. Okay. And what was known as the Corona Project, which was America's oh, no. first run at spy satellites. Uh, Again. Illuminati confirmed. Illuminati confirmed <laughs> and space race confirmed. The moon landing oh, was... hashtag space race confirmed. Yeah. <laughs> the fact is that he had the clout and he, people were like, this guy knows how to fucking... This guy's it. got a big dick and he knows how, he knows how to swing it, yeah, so... exactly. And at that time, Perengoski was the acting directorate of the science and technology <clears throat> department for the CIA. So this was right up his alley. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah. Alongside Perengoski, they comprised the team following... Oh, sorry. So hold on. So what they... Um, is another one of the reasons they might have choose this man because it was already part of things that he might have like covered anyway. So it looked less suspicious. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, and the fact is that they just go with the easiest route. They're like, okay, John, we know that you've worked with these projects, and we know that they've been huge successes under you. We know that you keep people online, so we're just going to let you... That seems like a strangely logical choice for the government to make. Logical. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm it's surprised. By, it's via merits, which it kind of should be. It's via it should merits. be. The reason I'm surprised is because it doesn't usually go that way. No, it doesn't. So the fact is, uh, Perengoski obviously couldn't do this thing alone, so they comprised the team to provide assistance and come with more concrete basis for which further development could be done, because the idea was there, but they needed to see how feasible it could go. Sure. So they sent in Alex Holzer, a fellow CIA operative, with him as a security person. Aaron Irwin Runga was an oceanographer. <laughs> Dr. Jack Stephenson, a chemist, also known as Dr. Red Jack. That's No. Name. Yeah, don't know what that means. Jesus, Doug okay. Doug Cummings, who is the deputy program manager. Duck Cummings? Doug. Doug Cummings, okay. Duck Cummings. No, <laughs> Doug. And then my favorite one was that they decided to just go unnamed aerospace mechanical engineer and unnamed Soviet submarine expert. Nice. <laughs> These two people were not important enough to have their fucking names posted. Well, the Soviet submarine expert they might not have named because they couldn't, maybe. Yeah, I think they couldn't for the it, two it, last ones. Honestly, that Soviet submarine expert... <laughs> That could have been... No, yeah, was, oh, shit. I said, that was probably a spy or an implant, probably. and they probably could not give that name away. Probably. <laughs> so, they had a basic team in place, and Berengoski had to look for some feasible way to get a recovery device down to K-129. Because you couldn't just send a ship in, because nothing like that existed at this point. Send in Russell Crowe. <laughs> you gotta send Russell Crowe down by himself to pick it Fighting up. Fighting around the world. Fucking throw it into the sky. <laughs> Come on, Tugger. Come on, Tugger. He just goes down to the bottom and pulls this thing out. I'll the corpses of the Russians. <laughs> um, and the fact was that, again, there were no real existing ways to get to the ocean floor at that depth. 
they just didn't have the feasibility. We had not had so, Jake, James Cameron who was trying to find the bar. So you might ask yourself, how to get down there? I might be asking myself how we got down there. How we get I'll down tell you, there. I got the answer for that, my friend. Yeah? So <laughs> they went through a couple options, but the only one that really stood out <clears> was that any way of getting to depths similar to those that K-129 was sitting at were two specific things. Number one was re- deep water communications, so like, you know, ocean um, communication lines. Oh, God, I'm trying to think of what they're called. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's long distance, you know, we used to lay telegraph lines. Sure. That would work. Or, number two, deep water oil drilling. Oh, God. Yeah. Oil drilling turned out to be the most feasible. Because communications eh, just didn't quite match their specifications. The field of deep water mining and oil drilling had inevitably become more enticing because you had to go into areas that were mostly inhabit- uninhabitable and were almost unaccessible to get the sure. good shit. You know? That good good. <laughs> good good. Gotta get that deep water good good. <laughs> gotta get that seaweed. Alright, you gotta stop. Legalize it. Legalize it! No. So the fact was that they're like, well, there's a there's an avenue in this. We could clearly go in. We could look at it and see what we can do. Recent technological advancements and renewed scientific and public interest in the potentials of the deep had meant that this field had a slim chance of successfully... Very slim, but they had a chance. Very slim of recovering the sub, but a chance nonetheless. Nonetheless! Nonetheless, Lucas! <laughs> the fact is that they needed to show some sort of interest in it without tipping them off. Okay. So they looked at the companies that currently were kind of cornering the market in this. And there was about three or four. So it was Continental, Shell Oil, and Superior. And those three ones had in the past owned a specifically designed vessel that was designed for such operations that involved going to deep water and drilling for oil. Okay. Now that's pretty enticing. Because if you can get a ship there... And somehow managed to get that down and successfully drill a hole in the fucking earth that's a substantial amount while the pressure and all the environmental aspects are acting on it. That's something to think about. Sure. The engineering company that held the trademark, though, for the vessel that those three companies kind of co-owned was a company by the name of Global Marine. So the fact is that Global Marine up until that point was a very new company. It had been established in 61 and Global Marine had basically been working in these specialty projects. They worked on big ships. They worked in government projects. It was just, that was their job. They designed ships. That was the thing that they did. And Global Marine had, even then, starting in 61, when they had first designed the first deep water drilling ship, had been refining its designs and technology. And so by the time that 1980, or 1968 had come around, they had come in as the leader in deep sea exploration, sporting a small fleet of drilling ships and exploration vessels that pretty much were like, any scientist wanted to get out these things. Back. I feel like you're giving me a tour of like the Global Marine headquarters right Pretty now. Pretty much, this is kind of what this. <laughs> is. After you sound like, I mean, become a leader here, in deep sea exploration. Small boat models. Yeah. <laughs> Look at how tiny they are. <laughs> so that being the case, the, that was definitely interesting to the CIA because even though you could really do that anywhere, you know, with any ship, that's not really all that impressive. I mean, eventually somebody would do it. The fact was that Global Marine had an innovative positioning system that they employed in these ships that was going to help in the case that they wanted to recover the submarine. Okay. The fact is that they needed something that could hold a ship in the same spot, regardless of the weather conditions. Because if you're at the sea, you will know that tides and currents move you around. That's how it works. And if you're trying to recover something, you have to stay in one spot for a very long time. What they had been doing, basically, was they had designed multiple ships where they had thrusters and satellite positioning. They could keep them in that same position regardless of the ocean conditions, so that meant that these ships, at least the design group that they had, was advanced enough to use that sort of stuff. That was going to be a necessity, so I want you to keep that in mind as a listener. So, moving forward, and again, a lot of this is kind of happening at the same time, so I did my best to sort of structure this without it getting confusing. As they're sort of looking into the avenue of how they could get a design firm to do it, they were meeting with those guys, the Azorian task force was eyeing other departments, too, to sort of figure out what needed to be done in order to sort of appropriate and manage funds for this project. 
And this is where the CIA sort of like black operation stuff comes in. Because sure. as you know, a project like this needs money and resources. And you have a lot of people employed in it. The only problem is, if you get one guy who can't keep his fucking mouth shut, and the wrong person hears, Hey, we're building a real big boat! Let's gonna go and pick up a submarine! Yeah, the Russians might find out. And then the whole cover's blown. So, they needed to have, number one, a department that could appropriate and manage funds. And they made the National Underwater Reconnaissance Office, or NURO. NURO. Badass. <laughs> Not really. No. <laughs> kind of no. But the fact is that, Neuro was formalized in August nine or August of sixty nine by Nixon, and it was led by Robert Frosch and Ernest Zellmer. And both of those men were going to be responsible for creating a security system that would keep that info on a need to know basis. They were going to turn the system Jennifer, and that would serve to filter the information that the public would see from the information that they didn't need to see. And that's kind of why a lot of people oftentimes refer to this as Project Jennifer, is because that was the term that first came up. So, Global Marine decided, or sorry, rather, the CIA in November of 69 decided Global Marine was the people for the job on this. So, and I call them GM, so that's kind of what I refer to. So, in this case, GM would act as the engineering firm for the shipbuilding angle. And okay. so, while the CIA was expediting the contract through Global Marine, there was a cover company that they would use called Mechanics Research Incorporated. <laughs> oh, that's technical. I didn't go into that. And honestly, it's pretty much classified, so none of that shit's there anyway. But they worked with experts from GM during the fall and winter of 69 to 70, and they hammered out a plan for the recovery method. Specifically, there's a lot of stuff that can go into this. You could have different methods of how to get it. You could slide something under. You could pick it up. I mean, but what they came in and the idea was that basically in, tone, or in tune with the, cl the um, claw idea, they would basically get the claw down, go underneath it, and then what they call just deadlift it. So if, like a weightlifter, just yeah. up. And bring it up. That's the idea. In order to get that sub, however, Global Marine was going to need to have a specifically designed ship, the likes of which had not existed up until that point. They started this process in the summer and fall of 1970. <clears throat> and the one person that they got to design the ship was the chief naval architect, John Graham. Graham's design, which later was termed the Glomar Explorer, culminated in a <laughs> vessel totaling 36,000 tons, 618 feet long, 115 feet wide, and Jesus. possessing the following key characteristics. So, just to give you an idea, this is a big fucking bitch. This, she is yeah, I mean, The problem is this. As we'll talk about later, she's so big, it's kind of hard not to notice something think? this big. So... The four key characteristics were that it needed a dynamic positioning system, something to keep it in the same spot over the course of days or even weeks. The heavy list system they were going to need would be capable of handling the weight of a submarine and being able to operate at the depths that it was at, which, again, had not been done before. A lot of this was uncharted territory. I feel like that's what you said in the episode. Listen, this is difficult. It hasn't been done before. It has not before been done Before you all at me. <laughs> you all will fucking at me, brother. And in fact, I like the way that in the CIA, the way that they looked at it was their cover stories were just like, we haven't done this before, so who gives a shit? <laughs> we'll just make up some story. Um, they needed also a derrick system. So think of like an oil derrick, sort of like an A-frame, a tall tower that would sit in the middle of the ship that would maintain an exact position over the wreck site. And that would basically be your center point where the sure. you know, material to grab the sub would be. Because if a boat is pitching... It's moving from side to side, and number one, it's putting stress on whatever you need to pick up the sub, and you run the risk of damaging the boat, because that's just how you know fluid dynamics works. And on top of that, this was a very specific one, was a moon pool. Lucas, do you know what a moon pool is? A what now? A moon pool. Um, no. Okay, so they're going to need a moon pool about the size of a college gymnasium with sliding doors on the bottom. On the bottom of the boat. And basically, to put it in simple terms, a moon pool is basically like an opening in the bottom of the ship that you could sort of have a sub... It, it like, tenders tend to, if you're like a big naval person, submarine tenders tend to work this way, where you would basically have like a neutral buoyancy where you could flood up the middle section to bring the, the wreck up, close the doors, drain out the water, and then you could just work in it, sort of like a big warehouse. Okay. But 
the fact was that in having a moon pool on a ship this size, as comes to be a problem later, it kind of led to some structural issues. Because you're playing fast and loose with physics here. Yeah. So, <clears throat> that being the case, the design was there. As they're designing it at the same time, you have that happening. Sorry, I just fucked that up. You had the executives <laughs> of Global Marine and the CIA realizing that a project this physically massive was going to inevitably draw attention both from the press, well, no from shit. the public, from the Soviets, from their own government, from Gary and fucking Indiana. I knew this immediately. How did yeah. they not know immediately? So, you might be asking yourself, Lucas, well, how did they hide this? Well, I asked that earlier, so yeah, that's uh, yeah. one of my questions. Say it again. How might they hide this? <laughs> Well, that being the case, they're going to need a cover story. As any good CIA black bag operation is, you're going to need some way of fooling the public because the public is too stupid to handle that requirement on their own. And that cover story would need to cover their asses because this whole thing had a lot of moving We're building a fucking theme park in the middle of the goddamn ocean. <laughs> you were so tight. We're gonna put. We're gonna go capture ship. Nah, it's just impressing how tired they would have been with that explanation. Absolutely. So that being the case, though, they needed a cover story that was gonna cover their asses the whole way on this thing. You cannot have a cover story with a massive gap, a la Bay of Pigs style, where you forgot that the planes <laughs> that you use don't match the ones that the Cubans use. Listen, um, these planes are close enough. Close enough is not good enough. So. They brainstormed and the answer came to them. Well, Global Marine is on the forefront, you know. On the forefront of marine technology. They wanted to be on the forefront of marine technology. We watched storms. (laughs) We do watch storms. And the idea was that they came up with this plan that Global Marine had decided from the top down to go into the mining business. Hell yeah. They were looking for something called manganese. Now, basically, manganese is just a combination of different minerals on the bottom of the ocean in what they call nodules. It's just a, it looks like a fucking lumped turd on the bottom. But the fact is that these mod- or nodules have a lot of rare earth elements that you don't usually find anywhere else. So it's a, it is enticing. It makes sense. And they wanted to also say that they were doing deep water research. That cover story was audacious to say the least. But it allowed Global Marine to, to a degree, explain why this absolute unit of physical engineering existed in the first place. <laughs> or why it was like, what the fuck are you doing out there? Why are you digging around? Because people inevitably would ask those questions. But that did have one major weakness. On the flip side, Global Marine is, is good for that because that's their job, but that's a too small of a company. And they needed that company to match, or at least have a funder, hint, hint, that match the kind of experimental drill ship project and risk Who's into wacky shit. <laughs> yeah, that they were going to need to undertake. Because a company like this is not going to sit there and risk millions of dollars on a project that's not going to come up with cash. That's we know, we know who's going to, though. Yeah. There was one man. One man amongst them. He could have made a fucking airplane the size of a small He did it. <laughs> out of plywood that clearly didn't fly. But he still made it. <laughs> A man who decided that he couldn't touch any surface in his home because of germs. He that lived man in a shroud of secrecy. <laughs> that man who decided that wearing tissue boxes on his shoes—that was that was the shit. I'm running out of analogies. That man is Howard Hughes. That man is Howard <laughs> Hughes. Yeah, and the fact is that they needed someone with a reclusive LA billionaire. Yeah, <laughs> millionaire. Somebody who number Hughes. one had a deep enough pocket, and number two, was crazy enough to publicly fund a project like this. <laughs> and old crazy old Mr. Hughes comes into the play. Motherfucker was there, bro. Yeah, man, he was there. Dicks out the whole time. <laughs> so that answer specifically came in the form of Hughes' company called the Hughes Tool Corporation, whose main owner was none other than Howard Hughes. This would fit the pre-existing public image for Hughes' can- or company that they were big enough and synonymous with risky ventures. Because again, because they're big enough, they're smart enough. <laughs> gosh darn it, people like them. <laughs> and the fact is, if you think Howard Hughes, you think Spruce Goose, you think of all these you know, speed records and shit like this, he's a guy who's taking risks regardless of the cost. So that kind of, people just look at that and go, yeah, it kind of makes sense. Kind of like a crazy person in your town somewhere. Kind of like if you Elon, ever, no, it'd be like Elon Musk sponsoring this, pro, pro, this, this process today. Yeah, pretty like much. Some, something like that. Elon yeah. Musk. It's just literally the same concept as saying Elon Musk, who sent a car into space because he could. 
Yep. That's literally what this is. And so, that being the case, there was the element of a semi-believable situation. They basically said, well, fuck, okay, we can make this work as long as Hughes is willing to play ball. And he'd already done government programs in the past, so he probably was going to. In, the, in October of 1970, Perengoski received the green light to begin the design and construction phase of this project. And in December of that same year, Hughes Tool agreed to act as the overt sponsor and contractor who would collaborate with Global Marine as the cover story. Meaning that if people had any questions, those were the two companies they were going to ask sure. to. And ideally, the CIA would kind of just not be there. So Hughes' support was secured. And once that had happened, Perengoski needed somebody to make sure that the story specifically within like Howard Hughes and having a public image was placed. And he tapped security leader Walt Lloyd. Lloyd had worked on, again, similar projects to Perengoski. He'd been the security guy. He knew how to control a narrative, and he knew how to control a crowd. And so from there, Lloyd would run the day-to-day -day security for the cover story as long as was necessary. Lloyd also knew that the program needed a public face and a spokesperson who could answer questions and deflect unwanted attention that might end up blowing the lid off the cover story. That man was going to be Paul Reeve. Hmm. Again, a lot of the, there's a lot of people operating. This I'm getting a lot, a lot, a lot of names there. A lot, a lot of, names. of names. I'll tell you this much though: Reeve and Lloyd, they're not really going to be mentioned constantly in this story. But they're they're just thinking of it. They're acting at the same time. So it's in an idea. Again, the names are not as important as the fact that we know there is a thousands of people working this project, and the CIA somehow managed to fool people at least until the mid 70s, 1975 into believing that this was what was happening, for real. Jesus. That a cracker-ass billionaire who decided to not go outside could somehow, like, fool the world into doing this. So. Then everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Exactly. <laughs> Fuck. All right. Anyway, so the design <laughs> of that major component was starting to take shape. The CIA ended up establishing the main office for the project near LAX. Literally just picked a building near the Los Angeles airport and said, fuck it, that'll do. <laughs> and went in. That office specifically would take care of monitoring all parts of the program and making sure that they coalesced on a day-to-day -day basis. Because, again, let's be honest, if something goes wrong, this whole fucking thing's going to be a waste of money. So between the late summer of 1970 and July 1st of 1973, the key parts were designed, constructed, and placed together. And by that time, they were ready to rock and roll. Be excited! I am excited, man. <laughs> You're not excited, you fucking It's liar. so bureaucratic, man. I know. <laughs> From here, though, it gets a lot more exciting. Take out the fucking crane, then maybe I'll care. What? Take out the crane, put it in the ocean, maybe I'll care. Put the fucking crane in the ocean, bro. <laughs> You're just like the most disinterested kid listening to history. You're the worst person on the board meeting for this. Just imagine if just Lucas being her like, Mr. Jagodinsky, huh? huh? You paying attention? <laughs> Oh, sorry, bro. You're boring uh, the fuck out of me. Just, just, <laughs> let, just, just let Lloyd do it. <laughs> I let the Lloyd do it. I don't know, man. Put the... Bro, why don't we take the crane and put it in the ocean, bro? They're like, but we gotta do this secretly. God damn it, he's a thinker. Get him as the lead of the department. It's like, but we gotta do this secretly. Secretly. I was like, well, then do it. They're like, we're discussing it how. <laughs> yeah. So the nice thing is here, we were able at this point to leave the bureaucracy behind. So... For, uh, starting on June 20th of 1974, with it, the whole thing set and ready to go, the Hughes Glomar Explorer, which I'm either going <laughs> to call the HGE or just the Explorer in this case. <laughs> the HGE. <laughs> set out for the wreck site from Long Beach, California. Sailing about 3,000... They set out from Long Beach? Yeah. Just imagine like all the surfer bros just like, oh, what the fuck is that? The funny thing about this is there are pictures I'm going to put for the website when this episode comes out of the boat sitting off Long Beach, California around just tiny little sailboats <laughs> while it's hauling this massive barge with the thing on it that's going to capture the submarine. <laughs> and people just like, that's cool. That's like, pretty neat. God damn, the people in the 60s were very, very accepting of just random shit. Probably because half of them were on acid. Probably. Most of them were burned out. Yeah. So they would be sailing for quite a long time, and we don't go through the day-to-day, because -day, let's be honest, <laughs> sailing is fucking boring. I'm sailing away. Hey, Sticks. <laughs> hey, Sticks here in the studio with us. Sticks. Sticks, I don't even what know. Sticks that they cut off the new album. <laughs> Hating on me. Anyway, so, I'm sailing from June 20th to July 4th of 1974. The HGE had finally found its location on the 4th and throttled down and glided to a stop in the middle of the Pacific. Hell yeah. 
So before Azorian could drop down to try to grab the K1 and 29, their operators needed to test cameras, audio, hydraulics, etc., which is, is fairly common practice. You know, you can't just run this shit the first time and hope it works. Correct. While that's going on, though, we have some company. Oh, shit. So as the Explorer was beginning its initial preparations, the Soviets inevitably arrived at the drill site. Jesus Christ. Showed up. The first one to arrive was the missile tracking ship Kazma. That was followed by the Blue Ah, uh, nothing to see here. No, much. no, it no. Was very, very <laughs> odd, actually. And it was followed then by the Blue Water Tug SB-10, which was, you know, a recovery tug for the Soviets. Basically, what happened was, as they're just practicing this, pretending like nothing's going on, and they're trying to sort of keep up the cover story, the Soviets are basically hovering off of the Explorer's position, just intensely looking at the Americans. <laughs> and they had actually had a, a, a hub, like a helicopter that was just buzzing them all for the next, like, three and a half days. Jesus. Just, like, because their expectation was, like, the, you know, because just recently you'd had the Pueblo incident in 68 where the Koreans had taken, a, you know, an American CIA boat. They were kind of assuming the Soviets were going to try something similar. And so they were kind of, like, on edge, like, if they board us, there's nothing we can do, so we just have to destroy everything we can before they can just get on board, which inevitably didn't happen. But it was fairly tense. As was the case, though, the Soviets had been tipped off naturally, to the Explorer's intended mission from a source inside the Navy Department. They don't know who that is still. Animal. Basically. At least that's what the story is. I mean, this was, that's common that the Russians in a lot it of out. World War projects. Or, uh, World War. God Cold damn it. War. Cold War projects, motherfuck. Yeah. yeah. And the Soviets remained with the Explorer for the next 13 days. Oh shit, hit my mic. Drifting to and away from the Explorer, kind of trying to aggravate them. And get some information out of us. <laughs> this is basically what I like to call the period of intense looking. That's literally what this is. <laughs> this is like the Cold War in like... A small yeah. microcosm. Yeah, this is like literally just what happened essentially. It's a lot of shit like this. Yeah. Ooh, I see what you got there. <laughs> Trying to... shame if somebody <laughs> caused an international Yeah, it's just incident. a massive standoff. <laughs> yeah, it's basically that. So, the Soviets were observing the Explorer... And while that's all happening, the Azorian team begins to lower the capture vehicle. Remember, this is all happening with the Russians looking specifically it. at the boat. And what's happening is that they're literally stealing a submarine, and the Russians are like, well, they're up to something. And they radioed it back. They can the only naval... be up to no good. Yeah, and the naval command in the Soviet Union said, ah, it's impossible. It's not a possibility. <laughs> it's, ha- it's not happening. It's not happening. It's not possible. And so they started to use the capture vehicle. Now, we go into it. It's not very technical, and it's very short. But the capture vehicle, or CV in this case, was the business end of the entire recovery operation. Again, not something that had been made before. They codenamed it Clementine, and it was developed by Lockheed in California. So okay. Such a cute name for a fucking... <laughs> Basically, this purely experimental apparatus was nicknamed the Claw. Ooh. What? Yeah, so way, to, way to name it exactly what it is. <laughs> I know, yeah. There's actually a thing in the book where they said you were forbidden from referencing it as that because it was literally what it was, and people still called it that, and then there was, like, people that would get in trouble. The capture vehicle. You mean the claw? Shut up! <laughs> you mean the claw? Shut up, Shut up Craig. <laughs> Nobody saw anything. So basically, Clementine, in essence, resembled a massive claw. That's what this was. So when I say that this was a lot like a, like, fucking... Pick up claw from an arcade game. That's literally what this is. Not even a joke. But it was a so the way it was designed was kind of oddly simple, but not at the same time. It had a series of hydraulic davits, five on one side, three on the other, which would wrap under the submarine to secure it. So kind of hug it from underneath. And when K and the fact was that because the K one twenty nine was listing at an angle on the bottom, they had a steel mesh installed to account for the list and serve as a safety catch in case one of the missiles happened to come loose during the process of bringing it up. And again, this whole thing was designed, custom made for this. So there's really no other use for this part of this yeah. operation. Outside. For any other, literally any other submarine, it wouldn't work because it's meant specifically for the For this one, yeah, yeah, which is kind of a gigantic waste of money. On top of that, they had an array of CCTV cameras that were connected to the command center that relayed a real-time view of the operation, which was intensely important because you kind of wanted to see what the fuck was going on. Makes sense. Hell yeah. And so as the cover story was fooling the Soviets, at least, 
for the time being. The explorer's crew of operators could only recover could only recover the K-129 during a 10-week weather window from about July to September. So the fact was that this whole thing was on a very tight schedule. So the fact that the Soviets were being fooled was kind of nice because at least they're like, okay, well, we're not just going to get harassed constantly. Right. And we're doing this basically under their noses. And the fact was, if you're thinking about, like, what we talked about in the first episode, where they're at, the seas get real mean. And a boat like that is not going to do so hot, especially in conditions like that. So they had to get this thing done, because if they fucked this up, even if you didn't damage anything, there was highly unlikely you were going to be able to do that again that year. You'd have to wait an entire another year to do this. And the fact is, the more of you fucked up, the longer you waited, the less of a chance of picking anything of value up would be. So they had to do it now. So regardless of that, they had to try. And the operation began lowering the CV on July 19th to the 20th, continuously making precise adjustments and dealing with technical and mechanical problems and breakdowns. The majority of the difficulties, as I found out, I read a lot of the CIA documents, and it's a highly sanitized version of, of course. events. They have redacted so much, whole pages of this shit. They uh, found a lot of the problems coming from electronics and hydraulics, and again, the issue was that if there was a major failure of the equipment, that could spell disaster and failure for the recovery effort. And one of the things to consider here is if just, for instance, when they finally got the sub, if something fucked up, something broke, the amount of weight and force being used, there was a chance that the boat could snap in half and sink. <laughs> That's how fucking, like, dicey this gets at certain points. Jesus. So on the 26th, the command center, again, so the, from the 20th to the 26th, it took them six days almost. To get the fucking thing down? Yeah, because they had to go in small increments. Uh, you go too fast, you end up damaging shit. You go too slow, you end up damaging shit. <laughs> so you got a bunch of dudes who are just fucking laser white-knuckled on their laser focus, just doing little incremental things, having to check gauges and shit. And they're doing this for six days. Jesus. Hoping that if you fuck this up, everything is done. So they made definite sonar contact at the bottom on the 26th. And they made a checklist, again, to make sure that they could run through the recovery stage. Because, again, you fuck that up. That's, that's bad. On the 1st of August, the CV was able to be positioned at the wreck just above it. And collectively, ah, Jesus, had successfully collected the fore section of K-129. And by 10 p.m. that night, the recovery to the surface began in earnest. The process would be slowly inching the wreck upwards and holding your breath. Literally. Because, again, now you're not only carrying... A massive ship with a massive, you know, thing weighing, you got 36,000 tons plus another 15,000 tons plus another fucking 15,000 tons. <laughs> You're putting some strain on this equipment. You fucking thing? It's never been put through this before. And while there were some continuing technical problems for a little while, the recovery was steadily progressing, at least for the time being. The only issue was, and I would say probably around the 6th of August... Because this precise date and time of this is actually classified. They classified the entirety of, like, what happened. But other than the fact that interviews have told us that something went wrong, there were some troubling developments. So, at the command center specifically, they had been dealing with the fact that the hydraulics and the arms that were holding the submarine were losing power, kind of back and forth. So they were fucking with this, trying to figure out what was going on. And there's a lot of technical in the documentary that I watched, too, and I'm not going through that. I, The way that these guys were, like, the way that this goes, it's like, I, well, now, what happened was, the A-frame was attached to the gimbal spring, who was attached to the spinadu, who did the one thing that was supposed to do, was that the AM6 was 6.5. Yeah, I, no, like, yeah, no. <laughs> I'm not going through that. Well, long story short, the fact was that, due to the sheer weight of this, the hydraulics were starting to give out. And the arms were actually starting to fracture because Jeez. the weight was pulling this thing down. And at one point in time during the recovery, the crew felt a sort of like hard jolt, like something had knocked loose. It was not a normal Comforting. <laughs> they were kind of concerned. Yeah, they're like, oh shit, what happened? You know, the fact is first they had to find out what had happened. Then they found out, oh shit, we lost something. We lost some weight. And then they had to figure out what specifically they had lost. Because, I know, if it was something not important, you could kind of keep going. But if it was this whole fucking thing, that uh, that was it. You were done. And one of the things they kind of pointed out was that if, during recovering it upwards, if the sub did break the pipe that was holding the thing together, the force could literally snap the back of the Explorer 
the way it was sitting. And again, these guys were probably not going to get picked up. So these guys probably would have died and Jesus. no one would have cared. Um, what they found out was that they called down to the command center, which had the CCTV cameras, and they said, take a look at what's going on. And the CCTV camera footage said that the sub was still there. Nothing seemed to be amiss. So they said, check it again because something's up. So they come back about maybe 20, 30 minutes later, and they said, you're not going to believe this, but the whole midsection of the sub is gone. So basically what had happened was the arms had fractured, the hydraulics had given out, and the bit of the sub that had the missiles, the cryptographic shit, and the command center had snapped off and fallen to the bottom. <laughs> so the part of the sub that would have helped the most, they yes. fucked up. Went to the bottom and disintegrated on contact. Fucking gone. The fact was, though, they still had part of it. That even though the arms had fractured and everything was done, at least on that end, you still had the bow. So they said, well, fuck it. We might as well pull this up and just go with what we got. And that's what they did. So that whole cargo was gone, so far as we know. But apparently there's different stories saying that they still picked up shit and that that might not actually be true. I don't know. That being the case, though, the bow section was recovered. They brought it into the moon pool, ready to inspection team. Within the bow section specifically, there's not a lot to get, but the Azorian team managed to recover some sonar components, which was somewhat, you know, useful if they hadn't had it already. Hatch covers, which I don't know what the fuck you were going to do with that. Right. Instruments, but most importantly, they did pick up two nuclear-tipped torpedoes. Nice. So you did get something out of that. But again, it probably was something that they already knew about. Instead of the fucking literal command center. And the shit that they definitely would have wanted. Additionally, and I will put this video up, it's not morbid by any means, but they did recover the bodies of six crewmen that were in the forward section. Now, I don't know the condition of them, and that doesn't really get talked about. Though apparently, there's a whole documentary film footage that's still classified. That is the whole thing. Um, it was a nice gesture that they did. They recovered the bodies, and basically what they ended up doing was they filmed the funeral service where they buried them with honors there at the site. So they put them in metal caskets because what had happened was, remember, most of these guys, were their remains were irradiated. So they buried them in these metal caskets. And what actually ended up happening was when Boris Yeltsin was president, um, the acting director of the CIA at the time, as sort of a goodwill message, sent him that film. And it hmm. kind of helped, in a way, in the relations end. So conclusions on this. We've come to the okay. end. We've come to the end. Lucas is like, thank God. I didn't say it. Yeah, you are tired. No. I'm tired of this bullshit now. <laughs> what up? And you're going to get so... you By the time we're done with the Nazis, you're going to not want to hear about Hitler. <laughs> but the fact is that in the end, Project Azorian was not a complete failure, but not a total success. I'd say it's pretty fucking bad. bad. Who's the fucking whole middle part of the ship? <laughs> that didn't happen. But the fact was it did achieve some things. Because regardless of that outcome... Azorian had showed, at least within a theoretical sense, it was possible to recover stuff like this at that depth. Yeah, but the, you, you designed a literal fucking hook specifically for that sub and fucking still did not get the whole sub. Yeah, <laughs> so that being the case, it's kind of hard. It's really a debate. Um, in an unconnected way, though, while they were recovering the submarine, they found out there was what else but manganese nodules jammed in the wreck sites. <laughs> So the thing that they had built the entire lie off of was there to begin with. And actually what happened was after this went on, until they revealed it in 75, that public interest just rocketed in regards to underwater mining. Jesus. Because of this. Because they thought this was entirely what it was about. Because not only could they pick up manganese and say, look what we found, it works, hooray. The, for the time being, the CIA could kind of just cover their ass. That is until... Um, their security situation kind of fell through with a robbery <laughs> that <laughs> happened at the Hughes Summa Corporation office Jesus where all the Christ. documentation got picked up and leaked to the New York Times. Um, at which point in time, there was kind of a, not an international incident, but there was definitely quite a lot of uh, pissed off, or pissed off stuff. Oh, you don't say. Yeah, that um, caused the public to say, like, such a fucking waste of money and time. And oddly enough, the Soviets didn't seem to care. <laughs> kind of didn't give a shit, because at that point in time, technology had moved forward. And yeah. There were other things to deal with. So, that's the story. 
That's the stuff, huh? That is the story of Project Azorian. Uh, specifically, they had the Glomar Explorer for like another year, mothballed it. It was sitting in California for a good long while. They put it to use again as a drill ship, and I think it actually got... I think it got... Yeah, I think it was scrapped in like 2015. So that sucker was around for a while. But again, it was just a testament. This was a massive project. Listen, it was a huge Glomar Explorer, let's be real. Why don't you eat my ass? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week with some more content. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Peace out. Maybe Luke still do his job this time. and welcome to the Least Haunted Podcast, a place where science, skepticism, humor, and anthropology meet to discuss all things spooky, haunting, supernatural, and sometimes just the plain stupid. Join me, your host, Cody Franks, and your co-host, Garth Von Annen. That's me. Hi, everybody. As we journey all around the realms of the paranormal sciences to look with a critical and skeptical eye at various and sundry topics such as spontaneous human combustion, talking mongooses, various frozen hominids, St. Elmo's fire, and the Mothman, and also an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation for some reason, and a couple scripted radio play holiday specials. So join us every other week for a fun and hopefully entertainingly informative dive into all manner of spooky and strange occurrences, people, places, and things. Nouns. Nouns. The Least Haunted Podcast. Because the only thing that's haunted is you.